is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vunganyi. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, reporting about a war inside a war zone is one of the most difficult assignments for a journalist. And our next guest reflects on her time reporting about the war in Ethiopia's Tigray region. And me as a journalist trying to communicate to the, I think, trying to communicate to the world the situation and the circumstances, uh, because it was so difficult for people to confirm even the most basic things. I mean, there would be thousands of witnesses to an airstrike in Magala, but a journalist would find it so difficult to confirm. Mehret Okbay is an Ethiopian journalist based in Mekele. And humanitarian organizations are calling attention to the crisis in Sudan, which continues to disrupt the lives of millions of civilians, with thousands of people fleeing across the border to neighboring countries. The transit center was designed for 4,000 people. It's hosting at least 10,000 people, and it's overflowing. And we are in a rainy season, which means the camp is already crowded, services are not uh, enough, and people cannot move further. That is Abdullahi Halaki, senior advocate for East and Southern Africa for the organization Refugees International. Abdullahi recently returned from the border town of Rank, where thousands of refugees are crossing over from Sudan to South Sudan as they escape fighting between Sudan's military and the rival militia. But as always, we start off the show with voices from you, our listeners. The question of the week is, what do you see as the role of the media in your country? This is what you had to say. I think that the role of the media is to educate uh, the Ghanaian, is to inform and to entertain as well. And I, I should think that the media is on the right path because as it stands, we get information from the media almost all the time politics-wise, entertainment-wise, health-wise. The media is doing a lot. And I also feel that they are exercising their duties very well in the sense that now the layman is able to understand every information that is given out there because we have those in English and then we have that's of the chi aspect. And so if it is the English that they cannot understand, they can always access the key aspects of the media and and I think that for that it's a good take and the role of the media has been exercised quite well I should say Many thanks to all of you for your opinions this is Upfront on the Voice of America I'm Jackson Vungani and let's start off in Sudan where humanitarian organizations and refugee advocates are calling attention to the crisis in the country as fighting continues between the military led by General Abdel Fattah Burhan and the Rapid Support Forces, a paramilitary force commanded by General Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo. Reports say that since the outbreak of the conflict in April, more than 2.5 million people have been displaced, with about 600,000 crossing into neighboring countries like Egypt, Chad, and South Sudan. And the UN is calling for more humanitarian assistance to Sudan and these other neighboring countries. Abdullahi Halaki is a senior advocate for East and Southern Africa for the organization Refugees International. Halaki recently visited the border town of Rank in South Sudan. He also visited the border between Egypt and Sudan, where thousands of people fleeing the fighting are arriving in an area without basic necessities like water, food, and shelter. 
He joins me via phone from his office here in Washington to talk about his experience. Abdullahi, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you just returned from the Sudan, South Sudan border. Uh, talk to us about what you witnessed. What is the situation like in the town of Rank? Thank you so much. Uh, what I witnessed in Rank uh, is a serious humanitarian crisis that is brewing, and it need not to be like that. Because what's happening is that since the conflict started in Sudan mid-April, uh, over 100,000 Sudanese, some Sudanese have come back home uh, because of the conflict. Many of them are people who went to Sudan, South Sudan, during the conflict in Sudan since in South Sudan since its independence. So when these people have uh, come back through at least a dozen borders, with the rank with rank being the largest one, they are being received and they are taken to what the government and humanitarian groups, particularly the UN, call the transit centers. So I, the, the, the notion behind this is the South Sudanese government doesn't want to have any more IDP camps. Now, th- these are mainly South Sudanese. How are they yeah. being classified? Are they classified as refugees or displaced people? The, the South Sudanese, when they come over, they are, they are coming back home whether they have been in South Sudan before or people have never been to South Sudan, but they are South Sudanese since, okay. they, since independent. Those ones are classified as IDPs, and they should go back to their home states. The others, especially Sudanese and third country nationals, these are largely Eritreans, uh, Ethiopians, and a small group of the DRC, people from the DRC, when they come in, especially Sudanese. Sudanese are given prima facie refugee status, meaning they are automatically given refugee status and they are taken to Maban refugee camp. But for South Sudanese, they stay in rank uh, transit center onwards to their home state. Here are two challenges. Number one, the number of people who are coming in and the number of people who are taken onwards to their home state do not match. Why? Because there are no enough planes to transport people from rank to their home states mm. because road transport, transportation is very difficult. No, uh, sorry, a huge chunk of South Sudanese roads have not been paved. So how, because, how many are they? Have, have, do we have a number of how many have crossed so far back to South 100, Sudan? 100,000. 100, the South Sudanese government is struggling to relocate them to their home states. Is this the yeah, only point of entry for, for returnees? There are other 11 ones, but this one is the main one. Once they come in, they need to be, to, to be relocated. But the transit center was designed for 4,000 people. It's hosting at least 10,000 people, and it's overflowing. And we are in a rainy season, which means the camp is already crowded. Services are not uh, enough, and people cannot move further because, for instance, rank doesn't have an airport. It has an airstrip. If it rains, the runway gets flooded and no transportation onwards. There is no adequate money for transporting people. Number Mm. three, as long as conflict in Sudan is going on and it doesn't show any sign of um, uh, uh, stopping, more South Sudanese are going to come back. We we have something like 700,000 inside Sudan who have no comeback. In case you're just joining us, this is Upfront on The Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani.
We are chatting with Abdullahi Halaki, a senior advocate for East and Southern Africa for the organization Refugees International. Halaki was recently in Sudan, visiting the border town of Rank, that is between South Sudan and Sudan. He was also on the border between Egypt and Sudan, and he's talking to us about his experience as he witnessed the humanitarian crisis on these borders. What kind of services are they receive, are they receiving when they get to these points, to these uh, border points? When they come in, they are checked if they have got any medical condition. If they are children, they are checked if they are malnourished or something like that, and then they are classified, and then they are put in the in the in the in the transit center, classified if you are from Jonglei, Upper Nile, and all that region. But the other problem is there is no adequate funding for the rank response. So people are not getting enough food. Uh, I was there on Wednesday, and. It, Wednesday night it rained and on Thursday I went to the center. Um, it was flooded. And I asked people, you know, some of the returnees, how did they sleep? They said they just spent the whole night just staying up. You know, we have measles outbreak already and four kids died of the eight, over 80 that have been infected. So it is a ticking time bomb, which if, uh, which if not addressed now, not yesterday, now because we are in the rainy season, we are going to witness a serious humanitarian crisis. How are they traveling to to rank? What are they using to travel from Sudan to to the border towns? They are largely taking buses. There are South Sudanese um, organizations based here and some based in Juba and elsewhere, and they are helping to transport them. It is expensive, and some of them walk four days, some of them take buses uh, to come down. Here's the challenge again. The first wave are people who had means the second wave that is coming or the subsequent waves are people who do not have anything. So you're keeping them in camps, you're not feeding them, you're not feeding them enough, you're creating more problems. Now let's turn to Egypt, Sudan's neighbor to the north. Thousands of Sudanese have sought refuge in Egypt. How is the country receiving them? So if in Sudan, South Sudan, sorry, the border entry is largely South Sudanese who are coming, and the Sudanese who are coming are given refugee status straight. On the Egyptian side, it is incredibly difficult to cross because Egyptian authorities treat the border areas as a security zone. As such, the whole response is overly securitized. Let me give you an example. The town of Wadi Halfa, which is the, the, the first town as you come into Aswan, which is the closest city, Egyptian authorities do not allow Sudanese to come through. Uh, for a period, they used to allow elderly um, men and women and children because Egypt and South Sudan, sorry, and Sudan have got um, what they call the Four uh, Freedom Agreement freedom of movement to eat between the countries, uh, education, and also um, uh, employment. But I think mid this month, uh, sorry, 10th of June, actually, Egyptian authorities made that process far more stringent and said that even for those who are older, they now need a visa to come through. Here's the problem. If you're an Egyptian, if you're a Sudanese person who sought visa, in American embassy or any of these number of embassies, and most of those embassies have left, and your passport is stuck there. How can you get your visa? 
as a result, thousands of people are stuck on the other side of the border, of the Egypt-Sudan border. And that is becoming a problem because Wadi Halfa is a small town, doesn't have adequate facilities. There are people who are old, people who have good medical conditions who cannot cross over. That was Abdullahi Halaki, Senior Advocate for East and Southern Africa for the organization Refugees International. You're listening to Upfront on The Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. VOAAfrica.com News, features, music from Africa and around the world. You want it? We have it on VOAAfrica.com. VOAAfrica.com All day, all night. Welcome back. This is Upfront on The Voice of America. Now, reporting about a war from a conflict zone is probably one of the toughest assignments for any journalist. That task is even harder when the area from which you're reporting is under a blockade with limited access to the Internet and other telecommunication services. Mehret Okbay, a young Ethiopian journalist, was based in the Tigrayan capital, Mekele, during the war that has been raging for more than two years. She continued to report about the humanitarian crisis while providing first-hand accounts about the suffering in the northern region. And she joins me in studio to talk about her experience and what she says are some of the pressing issues that still require coverage from the international media. Mehret, thank you so much for joining us today on The Voice of America. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So what kind of reporting do you do? Um, So uh, I would say that over the past two years and a half, uh, my my work has primarily focused on the humanitarian situation in the region, Mm. um, access to humanitarian assistance, um, and human rights conditions overall in Tigray. Mm -hmm. Now, during the war, there was a blockade on the region. Uh, Phones were cut. Um, there was also a humanitarian blockade. How was it to cover the war in Tigray during the conflict? What was life like in Mekele, for example? I, I would, I, I honestly, it would be very difficult for me to even explain because I think people have very, a lot of difficulty even trying to comprehend a world where you don't have phones. Um, one of the things that happened to me, and I talk about this a lot because I think it's really important, is that um, there was there was a woman. Um, walking, uh, it was midnight, and this woman gave birth uh, to, to a child on, on our doorsteps um, because she, it was, I think, maybe 200 feet to the hospital uh, near, 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 where, near my house, but she couldn't walk anymore. She was in labor. Mm. She didn't have a phone, so she couldn't call someone to take her to the hospital. We didn't have fuel, so we couldn't drive her there. Um, there, I mean, there was, I mean, even if, even if we could call someone, I mean, who are you going to call? Because no one has fuel. So she could, she literally could not make her way to the hospital. And, and we had to witness that, um, in the freezing cold, a woman gave birth to her first child. And, uh, and the implications of not having a phone, the implications of not having fuel for civilians, electricity, mm. and then banking services as well, because banking services were shut and people could not access their savings. I think the implications of that on, on the civilian population were severe. Um, and, and me as a journalist trying to communicate to the, I think, trying to communicate to the world the situation and the circumstances, uh, because it was so difficult for people to confirm even the most basic things. I mean, there would be thousands of witnesses to an airstrike in Maghala, 
but a journalist would find it so difficult to confirm because it was so difficult to get access to, to access, get access mm. internet to access people inside Maala. Mm. You'd be able to, you know, m- maybe it would be government media outlets that would report on it, or it would be this one person, this one source that you had, and then you wouldn't be, and then people would not be able to communicate and publish stories on somebody that was working from inside and trying to get information out. It was, it was, it was very difficult. It How were you difficult. collecting reports? Would you have to go to these areas where the fighting was taking place? Um, I think. T- Again, travel was very difficult. Sometimes we'd have to walk for an hour, an hour and a half uh, to, 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 to speak to, to, to a person because, well, firstly, I mean, if the, even if there were transportation, the amount you'd have to pay because they would buy it at, uh, at, at incredible price. price. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, I remember at some point um, it had reached like $60, $60 per liter of, per liter, wow. liter of fuel. And so what? Uh, what? Um, so they they'd collect as much money as they had, but the amount you would have to pay to to get transportation would be so would be so ex- expensive. Mm. People couldn't afford it. There would be times where I would like there was no way I could afford it as well. So my best option would be if I really believed in a story and I really had to have it, you then I'd have it. to yeah, then I'd have to walk other, an hour and a half. Other means of transportation. Then, yeah, and then sometimes you go somewhere and then you they tell you like you'd walk an hour or whatever to get there, and people will tell you, you know. He's not here, yeah. and then, or she's not here, and then you you can't call that person to ask where they are to inquire where they are. So then, okay, so then I have to go back and then come back again the next how, day. How were yeah. you communicating with the outside world? Um, so you so there were so there were uh, specific agencies that still had access to internet that had satellite connection, mm. um, and and w- and through a lot of uh, through a lot of uh, begging and pleading, you would be able to. To 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 use their to facilities. Use, yeah, to use their facilities mm. for some like they, some people would be like I, okay I can I can help you for 15 minutes or 20 minutes, um, or you'd have other people that have consistent access and you'd give them your stories and they'd send it to your to your producer to whoever your contact is and so people had to be very creative in that and just and just find a way to get the stories out. So that's how you would communicate with producers uh, yeah. Yeah. and other journalists yeah. from the eight different agencies yeah. you are reporting for. Yeah, and I and I know that there were a few that tried to smuggle up, to smuggle. Other stories out. Yeah. So you'd have to use like whatever were, creative w- means. Were you in any kind of danger? Was uh, as a reporter reporting during this time of uh, of conflict? I think um, I think with within the region, I don't think I don't think there was uh, there was. A, I think I think at the time the the institutions in place believed that there was a need to get stories out there uh, as much as possible, and so there wasn't. The, the, there weren't that many hindrances present, but it was very difficult to be in Magalila in, in and of itself. You know, the, I mean, it was very difficult to access humanitarian assistance. I've never received humanitarian assistance. I lived there for 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 16 months, um, no aid, no assistance. I mean, people don't have ba- access to banking services. No one is better off. If you don't have banking services, if you don't have a salary, if you don't have uh, phones, if you don't have any way of, like, no one is better off. And aid should have been available to to as many people as possible, but it wasn't available. What aspects of the story did we as international media get wrong, given that we didn't have access to Mekele because of the blockade and and all other restrictions present due to the conflict? I think people miss the the extent of the suffering. And I think the I think the one of the stories that I've made most missed is the situation of women and girls in these types of situations. I think uh, I think 
we have not gotten sufficient coverage on what happens to women and what happens to girls when you don't have basic services, when you don't have health facilities, what happens to women when they, when they don't have health professionals to look after them, um, when, um, w when they're in labor, when they're, when they're, and, and also what they can do, also your li limited, your rights over your, your, your reproductive your rights are significantly reduced mm -hmm. in these types of circumstances and in these types of situations. I think uh, the IDP crisis in Tigray, that has, the IDP crisis that has resulted as a, as a, that has resulted uh, due, to, due to the ethnic cleansing campaign in Western Tigray, that has resulted in hundreds and thousands of people being homeless and living in uh, repurposed facilities across the state. I think their stories have been missed. I think uh, hundreds of thousands of people living in, 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 in repurposed schools and health facilities that can't, that can no, first of all, these, these institutions can no longer function, can no longer provide service for civilians because they are housing IDPs and those IDPs are not able to access aid and their stories are being missed, I think. Mm -hmm. I think people, I think there's been a lot of, there's, there's a lot of politics around, uh, around a lot of these issues and very little, uh, very little understanding or empathy towards the people that are suffering the most, towards the civilians, the women, Wh the children. When you say there's a lot of politics, what do you mean? I mean, I, I, think, I think when we discuss, the, I think the way issues of Western Tigray are discussed or the way they, they it misses the human component, it, it misses the fact that there are people that have been displaced from those areas that need a home, that need to farm, that need to make a living. I think, um, yeah, I think... I think we've missed those stories, and I think it's about um, it's about you know who, 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 it's about egos and who has land and who has and whatever. But I think we missed that this is a humanitarian crisis, and, mm -hmm. it, and it that is it's affecting human lives, beings. That it's affecting human what, beings. What do you make of that story that uh, Ethiopian Airlines has not been facilitating transportation for people in Tigray coming to other parts of the? Yeah, so I was I was turned back uh, when I when I tried to in in late January when I tried to travel to uh, Addis Ababa I was turned back by by I was informed of the restrictions by an Ethiopian Airlines employee. I asked the Ethiopian Airlines employee who put those restrictions in place. He said he just had a piece of paper from government. What and kind that of restrictions? Restrictions that, that said that people between the ages of 16 and 65 would not be able to travel outside of, uh, would not be able to use Ethiopian Airlines services to leave Tigray. Um, and so he said that, they, that there were these restrictions in place and that, uh, and that people would not be able to board unless, if you were within the, that age range, you would, have to, you would have to have a particular reason why you're traveling. Uh, either you have a health condition, or you are accompanying a minor, or someone, uh, or someone suffering from, from an illness, or an elderly. So unless you have those, re unless you qualify, mm. uh, you would not be able to travel. So and also, I think another part of that is that when you travel to, from Adsaba to Magala, your luggage doesn't arrive with you. Sometimes people, I lost my luggage, but sometimes people have to wait four or five days before their luggage arrives. Mm. Sometimes it's just a day. Um, and sometimes it's four days. Um, so, uh, and through that logistical, and this is a 45-minute uh, flight. Uh, flight. Right. Uh, people would, uh, people, and because of this logistical, logistical issue, people are also more likely to lose their luggage. So you, you're here. How did you make it? Um, it's, uh, well, I had a, well, I had a health condition. Uh, I do suffer from a degenerative uh, uh, eye condition, uh, and so I had I had uh, I had to see my doctor in Atisawa, and mm. I was able to provide that proof, and I got to see uh, so my doctor. So you took the proof you to the uh, airline and said, "This is yeah, you're required to provide that before you you're booked onto a flight." Yeah. 
What kind of impact has that had on, uh, uh, on, on people in the region, the fact that they're not able to travel freely in and out? And it's not even that people are not even... Also, it's also because it's extremely that... expensive to travel. Right. Uh, and so people here haven't suffered from... Some people suffer from health conditions. Some people haven't seen family members in years and are desperate to see their family, their family members, you know? When people travel outside, I mean, the person I was traveling with the day I was turned back, he hadn't seen his two children in two years. And so he was really quite desperate to, to get to Addis and be with his family. Mm. And so these are the type of stories you hear when people... Now, Ethiopian Airlines obviously has denied this reporting uh, about them not letting people from Tigray travel to Addis Ababa. Yeah. What, what do you make of that denial? I think I think there is ample evidence. I think there are multiple stories. I think you, I think I think there is ample evidence to to, to indicate that. Mm -hmm. I think of yeah. Now both WFP and USID recently suspended food uh, distributions in Tigray uh, after it was revealed that the food aid was being stolen or being sold on on the open market. Uh, how does this decision impact the people in the region? I think um, again I'm going to go back to the stories of IDPs and people that are. So I, I mean. Uh, I think, I think, I think money that is being that that is coming to support uh, uh, to support the most vulnerable people should go to them, and I think there has to be serious, uh, serious uh, mechanisms in place to ensure that that happens. And I think, uh, and I think it's the corruption of the conflict, and and uh, and the siege that has that has I think that 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 has made it. Uh, th that may have made it difficult to monitor, but I think monitoring is very essential to ensure that people receive the aid that they need. Um, and I think, but I think that obviously we have malnutrition rates going up. We have children dying because of this. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is something that has to be done co concurrently where you have these monitoring, place, monitoring, monitoring mechanisms where you put these monitoring mechanisms in place, but you try to do as much as humanely possible to ensure that the most needy uh, get the aid that they deserve as well. How were people receiving news about the war inside Mekele? So we we had a so we would we would also have power blackouts, and uh, that that would last weeks and sometimes months, um, and so that would make it difficult uh, to, to 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 get information. But uh, I think there was this interesting thing where people that had access to internet services would kind of go into the building and take screenshots of of social media. Uh, of social media interactions and stories, important stories that have uh, that have been published about Tigray, and they would go out and they would distribute it. There would be like this, these areas where people could go to to get screenshots of. So it had gotten to a point where I, my me and my friends would kid like be like, uh, "Have you seen Facebook today?" And then people instead of saying Facebook would start saying screenshots because <laughs> they, they called it screenshots. Yeah, so everybody's like, "Okay, did you get did you get screenshots?" And so then people would look, uh, would would see these and and get some, and some people that would have access would download news stories and would bring them over, and then friends, you know, would come together and see just just to learn about the about the situation. And I think, yeah, yeah, people were very desperate because uh, because of the because of the humanitarian situation. Mm -hmm. There was there was a lot of hope and anxiety around around political political, you know, uh, progress. People would want to know. Uh, as soon as it happened, you know, but but that was obviously very difficult. Um, and what is your assessment on how international media covered the conflict or still covers this conflict? What are some of the things that we get wrong? I think I see a lot of uh, both sides, but both sides, and this is, doesn't happen everywhere. But there is a lot of both sides kind of narrative that plays into that. Um, even in situations of like, even in humanitarian situations, sometimes, um, and I see, and I see that. Yeah, and I see some, and I also sense that at times, 
um, I understand for international media organizations that they have to kind of, you know, work with other bodies, they have to work with the government, that they have to kind of negotiate their relationships. And so I think that affects uh, how they're able to, to do reports and how, and I also think that there weren't as many stories coming out of Tigray. I think people kind of grew tired after, after some, after a certain, after a certain time, mm. uh, because it was so difficult to get stories out there. Um, and so I think there could have been more done in terms of bringing to light uh, the severity of the situation in the region, mm -hmm. the severity of the situation in Tigray. I think now even like airstrikes and the severity and then the, the attack and how much, I mean, it's, it's so, I, I understand how difficult it is to track, but I think there have been, there's so much technology in the world that can help you do that. And I think they've perhaps failed to take advantage of, the, of those technological advancements to, to properly report. Are you still reporting? Yes. What are you reporting on currently? So what I'm interested in right now is migration uh, out of Tigray, people like brain drain, people that want to leave the region um, as a result of the conflict and how I think, how disempowering, like how disempowering especially the siege feels when people, you know, can't, can't leave a certain area, can't, aren't, their mobility is significantly hampered. Uh, uh, their access to, you know, basic services is hampered and people, you know, people want to take back want to take back control over their lives. Young people want to take back that control over their lives and kind of, you know, feel feel devastated and exhausted. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering how that's going to impact the guy over, you know, over a span of, over a span of time. Mm. Yeah. That was Mehret Okbay, a young Ethiopian journalist. She was based in the Tigran capital, Mekele, during the war. And with that, we come to the end of our show today. Many thanks to all our guests and to you for tuning in. To listen to our previous episodes, visit our website at voaafrica.com slash upfront. You can also connect with us on our social media platforms. We are on Facebook. We are also on Instagram. Remember to like, to share, and to subscribe. Until next time, I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington, wishing you a great week ahead, Africa. Mm -hmm.